So before we start this episode, I just wanted to let you know about the retreat I'm going to teach very shortly, well in October, at Purple Valley Yoga in Goa, alongside my very special guest, Edwin Bryant. So it's a two weeks retreat, both weeks there'll be a Mysore class in the morning, every morning, and the first week I'll be there teaching asana workshops in the afternoons, the second week Edwin will take the reins for his knowledge and philosophy, including going through his well-known book on the yoga sutras in person. Further than that, Purple Valley Yoga Goa is generally great. A lovely shala, great food, wonderful staff, and set on a beautiful grounds with a pool. So I'm sure you're going to have a great time. See www.keyonyoga for uh, details or go to yogagoa.com as well. I hope to see you there. This episode of the Keen on Yoga podcast is sponsored by Moments, the booking system we use and highly recommend. Moments allows you to set up classes, workshops, courses, retreats, and appointments, either online, in-person, or hybrid. You can take payments using Stripe and PayPal, and the Zoom integration means that clients will automatically receive their link to join. It's easy for you and for your customers. Moments is great for solo teachers right up to studios with multiple sites. If you do run a studio, The staff payroll feature allows you to manage teacher payments and more. The robust reporting and time-saving automations will save you hours on admin. It really does take care of the whole business side for you. The excellent team at Moments will help you set up or migrate from any other system. And best of all, they offer real support via phone, live chat, and email. They really are there to help whenever you need them. Right now, Keen on Yoga listeners can get a free two-month trial for Moments. Click the link in the description below or visit keenonyoga.com forward slash moments, M-O-M-E-N-C-E, to sign up and give it a go. You'll be glad you did. If you have any questions about moments, feel free to drop us a line at info at keenonyoga.com or by a message on any of our social channels. And now, on to the episode. So, welcome today to the Keen on Yoga podcast, Judith Lassiter. Uh, Judith has been teaching yoga since 1971, one of the founding members of Yoga Journal, taught all over the world. And yeah, I've always wanted to talk to you actually, Judith. So thanks for joining today. I'm really privileged to be speaking to you. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. I'm I'm happy to do it um, to, for you and your listeners. I, I like to start um, with the most important thing first, which is a minute pretty much literally a minute of silence. So what I'd like to do is ring my bells once and then invite everyone except those people who are driving to, while they listen, to uh, sit in silence. So my suggestion is that you sit in front of your sitting bones, which brings the pelvis into a great position for the spine and slightly drop the chin, close the eyes if you wish. And my one other technique that you might enjoy is to take your attention to the center of your brain, the geographical center of your brain, however you experience or perceive that to be for this one minute. Yeah. Okay.
I'm all yours. <laughs> was that a minute? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I could have stayed there longer. That was good. <laughs> it's funny how you did, it really helps when you've got um, the feeling that there's a number of people doing it with you. And it kind of feels like somehow you could stay there longer than if you're just doing it on your own like that. Anyway, that was a very unusual start to a podcast. We've done over 100 of these now, more than that. And um, the first time we've done that to start, I'm glad that I knew from other podcasts that Judith has done that she likes to do that. Otherwise, I might have been surprised. Anyway, carrying on from here, uh, the obvious question, Judith, I suppose. I should have said also that Judith has written 11 books, so she's been really very active and thoughtful in her yoga career and with many perspectives to share. But the obvious question pertains to the start, uh, Judith. How did you get into yoga in the first place? What's your background and how did you uh, start teaching and, and who were your teachers? Just a brief, brief overview. It was an accident. Uh, I was in graduate school and was looking for a part-time job. So I was walking along that road by all universities where the bookstores and coffee shops are. And I went into the YWYMCA, it was a student Y. But the thing that was so interesting was as I was walking along the sidewalk, I'd never been in there. I really felt this force, like right from the middle of my body, just like pulling me in there sort of totally intuitively. And I walked up to the counter and said, I'm looking for a job, part-time job. And they all stopped and looked at me like, how did you know? And I said, no, what? We just got out of a meeting and we decided to hire a program associate part-time for the fall, minutes before that. Mm. So I guess you could say the universe was had its wind at my back. And so I took the job, they had a yoga program. I took one class, I fell in love. I practice the next morning what I remembered I started going to class every day and within a few months my students my sorry my teachers who had studied through the Vishnu Devananda uh, approach um, left moved away and asked me to take over a 200 person yoga uh, class weekly program and uh, with the hubris of youth I said sure how many people were in it a week 200. 200, not not in one class, but coming through the whole week, right? Yeah. 200, 200 yeah. different people. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and I, uh, so I went to teach my first class. You know, I thought, sure, of course. And then I sat down in front of everyone and they were all lying on the floor for, you know, 25 or 30 people just lying on the floor. And all of a sudden I thought, what have I done? <laughs> I had no training. None, zero, but my own practice, mm. my own study. But I, I would love to tell you about that event that happened next because it shaped my life so deeply. I was sitting there and I thought, okay, I'm going to sneak out. I can't do this. And then I remembered my teachers had said in such situations, take a deep breath. So I did, took several slow breaths and had the kinesthetic almost physical awareness they wanted to turn around and look over my right shoulder of my teacher standing there and then appeared in my mind their teacher behind them and then back into a line of infinity teacher to teacher and I had this very clear experience of them all passing a bucket of water forward And I realized that I was the bucket, not the water. 
And for me, that meant it's not about me. That And how I would mm. say that now is that for yoga teachers, is the, the, the teaching comes through us, not from us. And I got that and I turned back around, opened my mouth and haven't stopped talking yet about yoga. <laughs> I've been teaching now for 52 years. And I think what that, how I would interpret that now is the necessity of our own practice to prepare mm. the bucket. Yeah. And it's great advice, I think, for any teacher, because that's exactly I intuitively did that to myself at the start as well, because there's no other way I could have ever taught if it was me. And so I just thought, you know what, I'm just sharing something that's really had such a big benefit to my life. So I'm just sharing that to people. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was the only way I could have ever stood up in front of done, and done that. You know, there was just no other way I could have done it as me. You know, I would have crumpled in the corner after the first five minutes, I think. Um, so, so. Uh that's why I ring the bells in part. Right. Change to remember mm -mm. my words when I speak about yoga uh, are shaped by me, but they don't come from me. This wisdom mm. does not come from me mm. or you. No offense. It <laughs> <laughs> no offense taken. I'm sure it doesn't. <laughs> Nothing wise comes from my mouth. What, <laughs> I doubt um, that seriously. Judith, when you first had that first yoga class, I wonder if you'd describe how you felt, because I know you came from a, did you say you were doing a dance background? You had a dance background as well? Yes, I had a dance background. Yeah, and yeah. that's why I started taking yoga, because I was getting some arthritic symptoms. And I thought, oh, no, I want I want to dance again. And so it, it that was the reason. And I didn't really want any of the philosophy or anything. And I just... It was literally a line in the sand, a bright line in the sand, the day before I, I took my class and afterwards, and I ended up meeting my husband at the Y. Hmm. Now I have these three children, one of hmm. whom the youngest, my daughter and I work together and she, she's trained as an architect, but uh, and she does uh, with a lot of design background. So she designs a lot of websites and all our work together. And, hmm. you know, I like to say, hmm. I, I kind of wanted a yoga partner. So I, I grew one. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter <laughs> so it was a huge it was a black and white moment yeah not yeah. often that we can identify those moments like often i think of that some of my people i know the most best friends and things and i think now how did we meet again like it's so long ago like it just seemed like i always knew them but it's it's wonderful i find it wonderful for me that i know the moment yeah that I, yeah Took that. I call it the most important right hand turn in my life, a turn into the why. Right. But it's funny, isn't it? That it just kind of seems like fate. And I think I, so many people would have a similar experience, I think, of, of their, their the happenstance that came about with taking their first yoga class. And I've often said it about my classes that I happened to want to do Tai Chi actually, but the Tai Chi night conflicted with a night at the student union, which was actually a kind of party drinking night, really, to be honest. And I wanted still to do that, but I knew I had to do something for myself as well. Um, and then there was a yoga class on the other night. So I kind of wanted to do the Tai Chi, but that conflicted. So the yoga class was attended and, and you know, here I am now, and 25 <laughs> years later. So it kind of, kind of, yeah, there's a lot of, I think so many people would have had a similar kind of fate-like experience around around their teaching. Or their, their mother or their 
friend or something. Yeah, yeah. Class, but, and then their friend dropped out and they stayed forever. Yeah, yeah. But then what I was going to say is probably not in 1971. So, I mean, I was going to ask you the leading question then. What what do things look like back then, you know, when people hadn't got so much exposure to Asina? What was the kind of language around that? What were the expectations around what people were getting from the class? How how are you teaching Asana? I'm sure things have moved greatly. So I would love for you to speak a little bit about, about your experience back then. Well, when I told my family I was doing yoga, they they looked at me and said, why are you, why do you want to sit on, lie on nails? <laughs> That's what they thought it was. And and I thought about that. I thought, yoga's not about lying on nails. And then when I got more deeply into it, I thought, yes, it is. <laughs> so <y'all laughs> right. <nails. laughs> Next, you got it right in the end. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Well, what happened is one of my students that first few months of teaching gave me a book called Light on Yoga by BKS Iyengar. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, like everyone, turned immediately to the back and looked at the postures. And I thought, nobody can do these postures. So I kind of put the book on my shelf. And then, but fate was after me because Sometime later, I was walking across the campus and I picked up a copy of the undergrad newspaper, which I never read anymore because I was a graduate student <laughs> teaching my master's thesis. And mm. kind of turned through in the little tiny little ads in the back and it said, yoga class, come, you know, is a phone number or come to this address. And, and I, I couldn't believe it because yoga was not widely known in 1970 one in the culture and I went there and it turned out to be a a senior student at BKS Iyengar and I was the only one there and he didn't speak much English and I I spoke French as a child but I remembered very little so he just put me in these poses and I'll never forget I did headstand and he picked me up by my ankles and shook me and put me back down on my head that that's Hmm. something one doesn't forget but it was so stunning to me, the effect of, of the alignment that was asked and the level of attention. And uh, so then I got married, moved away, lived out on a ranch for a few months trying to figure out what's next. And, and I took out the book and I start, started trying to, to follow. And turns out when I moved to the Bay Area within two years, uh, I was, I was helped, I helped found the California Yoga Teachers Association and hmm. we had BKS Iyengar come through oh, a wow. friend of a friend of a friend. He was in hmm. the state at Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we brought him. And so I studied with him for a long time. Uh, went to India three times to study with him. Mm. I didn't realize you had such a background with BKS, huh? And, and mm-hmm. what, when in those early days, what were, what were the people coming to the class kind of expecting to see? I mean, it's like you mentioned your parents saying about the better nails and my parents used to, you know, back in the nineties even said, you know, because everyone would say, just put their hands together and, and say, om, you know, and assume you're kind of sitting there, um, you know, lighting incense sticks and saying, om, which is kind of ironic because I was, I had a back, you know, my background was Ashtanga yoga. That's what I was doing, which definitely wasn't just about sitting down and saying, om. So, well, you know, well, 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 no. what were people thinking, you know, and then when they come came to the class, because most of the people then wouldn't really have had much background in yoga as opposed to now, right? And what, what were they, you, you know, yeah. You know what? That that has pluses and minuses. Mm, mm. 
because they were innocent. And that, mm. was, the, that was the days of the Maharaji teaching uh, transcendental meditation and the Beatles and that whole counterculture mm. of, of the drugs with, you know, different states of consciousness and Ramdas and the mm-hmm. whole acid thing. And it was all a big conglomerate, a big stew, if you will. And so people, people knew that this was a spiritual practice in a way much more than they do now. Right. Because yoga is now mm. lumped with fitness mm. and uh, watered down to the most simplistic concept, which is asana as exercise and overlooking the philosophical, at least the Ashtanga eight-limbed path of the yamas and niyamas and and the true intention of what the practice is about. So what happens today, I believe, is that we confuse the asana for the yoga. Mm. And the asana, the postures are not the yoga. It is the residue that the asana leaves in our nervous system, that state of presence. Mm. Mm. Because yoga is both, it's a state of being, a deep radical presence, and the practices that are associated with it. And we have, we have stripped away the philosophical part, generally in the States, and, and, and kept the, how many chaturangas can you do? You know? Uh, and heated the room a hell of a lot more. Uh, so, I'm sorry? And heated the room a lot more. So heated the room you're gonna, a lot Wet and feel like you're doing more exercise. Sometimes your words are faster than my ears. (laughs) Sorry, it's my accent, probably. Um, Not the accent, but but it's the speed. Like I notice it when I go to London. People speak much more quickly, and they say, "Even without your accent, I know you're an American because Americans speak so slowly." I think you enunciate better as an American. Obviously, you've got a Southern accent as well, so that's spoken a little bit slower as well. So it's a very yeah, very well, well articulated and clear for my ear. But I'm sorry, I can't respond <laughs> similarly with my with my with my, with my own accent and, and words. Um, I was going to say, what, what, so people weren't so infused, so motivated, or so let's say I don't want to say obsessed, but so compelled to make physical progress. Did you see less of that propensity of people pushing themselves and asking for more asanas? Oh, and the whole thing was done in a darkened room quietly right, right. and it, the Vishnu Devananda Swami Vishnu Devananda system you would do a pose and then you would lie down and then you would do another pose and lie and lie down and so it, it really was what I would later learn that yoga is a practice of action reflection action reflection and today there is absolutely no reflection not just on the asana practice but there's that 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 habit of action reflection, which we were taught in the early days, mm. was is not carried out of the room. And to me, it's what you do when you leave the class. It's like how how does this practice affect your life? Because your life affects your practice. You know, when we step on the mat, we bring our whole life with us. We bring our personality our fears, our hopes, our dreams, everything to the mat. 
And if we cultivate a reflective attitude, we realize we cannot quote unquote, do asana or pranayama or meditation any differently than we do our lives. And so I actually have written a book called Living Your Yoga, which I wrote, it came out in 2000. And it's always been for me, okay, now how do, how do I manifest these teachings of letting go and of presence and of non-harming if I'm not living them on Tuesday night, you know, when I'm not in my class or whenever, mm. then what, what is the reason? It's like going to church on Sunday and then sinning all week. <laughs> kind mm. of mm. Mm. Uh, so but for no. me, it's always been, it's always been about how am I going to live my life with these teachings? How am I going to speak to you? How am I going to interact with a student? Am I going to treat everyone as if they were Buddha? Now, of course, you know, supposedly there was a Buddha. We all like to think there was, but who knows really? And who knows exactly what he taught? We all think we know, and maybe we do. I have a little cartoon I like to look at sometimes, which is a a photo of Buddha sitting, like a drawing of Buddha rather sitting. And underneath it, it, it said, I never really said that. <laughs> but <laughs> I liked, I like to bring my yoga off the mat by thinking of everyone as Buddha. And then that's a little shorthand mantra for me to remember to treat not only you, but me. If everyone is Buddha, that means I, I have Buddha nature too. So to me, the proof of the pudding of the practice of yoga is not handstand lotus in the center of the room, which I've done, and I still had to go home and wash the dishes. Uh, but how do I interact in my life mm, with other mm. Buddhas? How do what 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 to what do I give my attention? How do I how do I live? Yeah. How do you square that with your background in Iyengar yoga then, for example? What's, what the, what's the practical teaching for you consist of? What does, what does alignment consist of? What are you trying to get your students to do physically and why? If, 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 if theoretically we could say from that perspective that you've just uh, elaborated so nicely that really anyone could come into the class and do anything in terms of their physical body and it wouldn't matter whether they were quote-unquote aligned or had any particular technique involved if they had the right attitude, right? Uh, I would say it this way. I'm also a physical therapist. I, after I started yoga and I realized that I wanted to be a teacher of yoga, there was really no profession of yoga teacher. Mm. There were yoga teachers associated with ashrams like Satchidananda and Shivananda and the Kundalini yoga people. And later, I remember where I was when I first heard about Ashtanga in the late seventies. Uh, Patabi Joyce, but there, when I was starting teaching in 71 and two and three, and there was no profession. And I thought, okay, who knows? I would like to do productive work in the world. I'm going to go to physical therapy school so that I can learn about how people move. And that was another moment. I just woke up one day living in the country where I could look out the back kitchen window and see cows grazing in my father-in-law's ranch. And I said, 
how can I teach people about moving their bodies if I don't know it very much? So I went to PT school and then I did a PhD in East-West psychology because I was also very interested in the psychology and philosophy of yoga. And I wanted to dig a deep well. And I would have a background now as a PT to do work with people Mm. that I thought I would enjoy. So I went through that training. And when I took my first class with BKS Langar in 1974, he came where I was living in the San Francisco Bay area. And it made so much sense to me anatomically, but and we could say the nadis maybe we're aligning the energy so the energy can move more freely. And we know, you know, intuitively and experientially that if you slump over, you can't breathe well. But if you stand with normal curves and you oh, and you stand well, then you can breathe well and you can think better. I mean, we know there's a, no separation in our in our body. Uh, it, it's all connected and. So I was, I was very impressed when I started practicing with more alignment, the poses felt better intrinsically. Mm. Mm. And it, I liked the attention that I needed to, it was a focusing technique in a way, but that's not what really drew me to his teaching. You would think it would be, but it was secondary to the first pose he ever taught me was Tadasana. And he was teaching a class. I was, you know, it wasn't even full. It was room for like 50 people. Like there was a 47. I mean, this is mind boggling, but you know, this was early days and we were doing Tadasana and he lined you up by height. So I was in the second <laughs> row. So I'm five, four. And he started verbally picking on me. You call yourself a yoga teacher. You can't even stand up kind of idea. And I, I felt irritated and I started having a sort of semi angry conversation with him in my head. Like, who is this guy anyway? Why is he being so rude? Why is he doing, why is he doing this to me? And then he'd walk away and he'd come back and he'd shoot another little arrow at me, verbal arrow. And then I started feeling sorry for myself. Like I'm really doing the best I can. Why is he picking on me? Poor little me. And then in a, what I like to call, a blinding flash of the obvious. I looked at him and I grinned at him because I got it. This man is teaching me how I live my life by how I practice. And I grinned at him and he grinned at me and he never picked on me again. Hmm. And then he proceeded to teach us Tadasana with all the limbs of yoga, like your feet are bhakti yoga is that correct, you know, devotion caress the earth, your thighs are karma yogas. They do the work of holding you, you know, and I wish I could mm. of course remember all of that he did. <laughs> and that so appealed to me, that integration of the practice and the body that you are the living yoga was really a match for me mm. and shaped my, my practice and my teaching so much. And then in later years, I, I began to pull away sort of, naturally i think and softly because i he would sometimes hit people this is well known and yeah i could yeah. i could no longer be in the presence of that um even though it wasn't happening to me and i realized if someone hit me on the street or that that would be battery and that's illegal and why 
why should my yoga teacher do that? Like I say, he never hit me, um, but he did hit people in my presence. So what's really the difference? And he was angry. He had, a, I believe, this is totally me, a lot of, as we all do, unresolved issues, mm. uh, emotional issues from his past. And uh, yeah, he was a definitely, definitely an angry character, I think, and I'm known as, as bank kick slap Yenga, right? So, of course, of course. And we've uh, all heard that. And he, yeah. Uh, you know, people would say, oh, that's because he loves you. And it just dawned on me. That's what uh, battered women said. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's yeah, so exactly. I, I yeah. stepped back lovingly. I stepped back because it wasn't, my, it wasn't my path anymore. But I give him a great deal of credit for what I learned from him about the practice of yoga. Because he I was, was definitely a dedicated practitioner. And I was going to say, look, before you, before you qualified the statement with, with that, um, how do you teach how do you teach students and has that changed i mean you you know i think you there's something about the the kind of cl- the, the rhetoric he used on you at the start of the class that you somewhat appreciated before he actually started hitting people the, but it was i mean many people would have broken down and and you know and left the class and felt kind of picked on or victimized in that capacity um so yeah i'm wondering how how you developed your own kind of method of teaching individuals and how you relate to them well, first of all, I, I carry a great deal of respect for my students. First of all, they're brilliant. They chose me as a teacher. That was a joke, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, I got it. Everyone is Buddha. And so I teach, I believe my students would say now with respect, I ask every time, may I touch you? Or if I'm behind them, I'll say, I'd like to lightly touch your shoulder blades. Um, And I believe that it is the ultimate job of a yoga teacher to reflect back the inner wisdom and inherent goodness in each student. And the only way we can do that is to find it in ourselves. They are already whole. Everyone is already whole. We've lost that understanding. And so I like to treat through language. I've just written a new book called Teaching Yoga with Intention, and it focuses on languaging and touching. Mm. I want to, in my language, not create an environment in which people choose to challenge themselves to the degree that's appropriate for them. And I I don't ever say, for example, from my studies of nonviolent communication with Marshall Rosenberg, I don't ever say you're doing it wrong. Mm. I say, I'm very concerned about your knee in that position. May I show you something else that you might like? Uh, I definitely have an opinion. I definitely have a focus in the class. I definitely would like them, you know, you know, at least in the States, it's probably true to, for you too. The, the old joke is, uh, is every, yeah, everyone has this nightmare once in a while that they go to high school naked. Well, I never had that dream, but I had the dream. Sometimes I've had the dream that I go to teach yoga and no one will listen to me and I'm trying to do teach a class and no one, it's like a frustration dream. So uh, it, it has to be, there is a class is a leader, but a leader inviting people to ex- have their own experience, creating an environment in which people feel for one thing, free to say no to me. And I always make that clear. I, I tell them, I say, you can say no to me. I heard it a lot. I raised three teenagers. 
<laughs> did you, did you, did you say, if I say, would you like to do handstand? And they say, no. What I train my teachers is always say yes to your students. And that doesn't mean you agree with them. But if someone says, no, I don't want to do handstand, you can say, yes, I hear you. Yes, I hear you. Would you be willing to do one-tenth of handstand? To just put your hands on the floor near the wall and take five breaths. Because it's, it's not I, a power struggle between you and me as teacher-student. Mm. It's we're doing... I'm my main job is to facilitate an environment in which you learn what you learn. And if I treat you with respect and I'm willing to hear, no, I'm really afraid. I don't want to do that. I'll say, all right, let's please go try this while we're doing it. Uh, So it's not about ever forcing you or anyone to do a pose because even if they get up in handstand, Whose victory is it? Not theirs. Did you change your approach over time in this? Because obviously that, you know, when I was going to say when Yengar did that to you in the 70s, that wasn't it wasn't the same as now. The time wasn't the same as now. And that kind of approach was probably more of the norm at that point, right? And even even in Ashtanga, we're finding, and you know, I do my bit for this. the the kind of democratization of the whole process so it's not so authoritative and the hierarchy isn't upheld with the the teacher just you know you do whatever the teacher tells you to do you know so has this approach always been there with you or have you you can develop it over a period well i i never yelled at people and i never hit people but Mm. i think i think i'm much more conscious now of my words Mm. Mm. much much more conscious of my words and the power of words because that's all that's quote unquote this sounds a bit gross I guess but what we have as a product as a teacher is our words that's our product quote unquote Mm. and words really matter tremendously wrote a book called (laughs) about words mattering Uh, but there there's there's something else I was lucky enough, and it sounds like you were too, the study with Patabi Joyce is, uh, if you did, is we were the generation of, we had direct contact with the lineage from India, with the gurus who started coming. And I actually think mainly the real gurus never left the mountains. <laughs> you know, they had no ambition, but we'll, that judgment aside, uh, I had direct contact with the source. Like Mr. Ingar was a Brahmin Indian who studied with his uncle, uh, Krishnamacharya. And there's a lineage there. And what's happened now is I have yoga children, yoga grandchildren, yoga great-grand, you know, there's, there's a, a number of iterations past that where most people in the beginning had contact directly with the teacher Mm. from India or one of his senior students. And almost no one has that now. And you can see what, at least in the States, like yoga has moved so far away from its roots into, you know, goat yoga and like all these things that 
are not traditions. So there's a, I think there's a healthy tradition between a healthy, uh, what's the word I want? Like tension between tradition and innovation. Mm. And I think we're struggling with that right now of this patriarchal, rigid, male, you know, dominated kind of teaching. And we're in a place now of growth and excitement because we're opening up the practice to all people, to people, you know, who in hospital, I mean, we're using it everywhere now. And, but, but at the same time, it's devolved away from the first three verses of the yoga sutra, you know, that like now the yoga is presented. Yoga is a state in which the mind is no longer dominant. And when one is in that state, one is in the state of yoga and has devolved into uh, a physical practice with no spiritual underpinnings. So I think there's somehow. We could certainly redefine it as one is in the state of yoga when one posts one asana on Instagram and gets over a thousand likes. Exactly. <laughs> then exactly. you so have reached the state of yoga. Yeah. And uh, part, I really believe in the good, bad theory of, of, everything's got good in it, everything's got bad in it, quote unquote, simplicity, mm. because the brilliance of the American marketplace, I mean, when, when I remember going to India the first time and I needed a toothbrush and I went to this little store and I, they had two kinds, red or blue. And I got home to the States. If I go to a, a large, you know, what we call drugstores uh, to buy a toothbrush, there's a whole aisle of toothbrushes with slants and with this and with that. And it's like the tyranny of choice. The American West and generally Western marketplace provides, and this is part of our boon and our bane. It, 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 it thrives on this, you know, you want a car? Okay. It's a major life decision. Like there's so many cars, like, mm. and, and sometimes it's nice to just have a choice between red and blue, you know, but that's what's happened in yoga. Yoga has been marketed in everyone's wanting to brand so many teachers now want to brand themselves as a yoga is all part of marketing. And that's wonderful and horrible because it gets the word out. You know, there's people that specializes in people who are, uh, you know, have, have trauma and uh, pregnancy and uh, you know, all these different marketing things and all of it is fantastic because it widens the circle, but it dilutes the message. Yeah. I mean, get further away from the, mm, mm. from the lineage. It does. Well, on the other and hand, I mean, for example, your work on the, the language of yoga, I mean, that just wasn't around even when I started right in the nineties, that this idea of using language in a skillful way. I mean, I imagine in the 1970s, you know, and, and even when I started, you, you probably said things and I said things that, that weren't as skillful as they could be, you know, and causing, Absolutely. You know, causing up, upset. Yeah. Causing upset to the students. Right. And that is a new thing that's innovated out of yoga, like an evolution that, you know, we've got to credit as a, you know, as something which has been brought to our awareness. Right. So I'd like to kind of bring this all together now and, and say what, what, what I'm 
seeing for the future mm. of, of yoga if you're if you're willing to discuss that absolutely i i, I wouldn't uh, mention on the podcast because i know you said it elsewhere and i thought it was quite funny that you pinned do you still pin your yoga class price to a, the cost of a cinema ticket because i thought it was excellent if so they're getting quite expensive so you definitely uh you definitely done well there (laughs) i think yoga teachers uh deserve to be paid a a living wage you know um if they're well trained but i think the crisis that's happening now if you will in the yoga world is there are so many teacher training programs. There's a lot of 200 hour training programs because of Yoga Alliance, which I have to take responsibility for in part because I was on the early board and helped many years ago with this coming up with this 200 hour thing because we wanted there to be a baseline. But now that baseline has become a ceiling. And I think there are, I know that there are trainings that you can get in a weekend. In fact, in the United States, you don't need any training to be a yoga teacher. You can literally hang out your shingle to be a yoga teacher anywhere in the United States. And you only need one thing, and that's students. You don't mm. need any training at all. Mm. There's no law because the yoga teachers, have we fought that. We don't want the government telling us what yoga is. But so I think what's happening now is that the teaching not only are we getting away from the lineage, but it, it's so diluted. And I meet yoga teachers who are trained yoga teachers. And I'm very sad to say sometimes they, their, their knowledge of the body is, is very, very, very minimal. And that, that concerns me. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking that we're sort of at a place where we need to look at where we want to be in this sense of taking back some of those roots and and holding ourselves to higher standard of of practice and behavior uh, in the true tradition of yoga. Now, exactly how that's going to happen, I don't know, but I think the pendulum needs to swing back again a little more to Mm. that level of dedication and respect and for, here's, here's a perfect example to sum it up. A group of us got together many years ago and we decided to create the Yangar Yoga Institute. And we had a teacher training program. And you had to have practiced yoga for several years before you could even enter the teacher training program. So you were already practicing. And what is now happening is that people walk up to the door and knock on the door and say, I want to be a yoga teacher and they're sort of, but they don't even really do yoga yet. So it's like, if I wanted to go to dental school, you know, I show up knowing nothing about it. So people show up now at yoga teacher training programs who may have taken one or two classes. They know nothing as opposed to the people 20, 30, 40 years ago who showed up already deeply enmeshed in the practice. And you cannot teach someone at the same time their own practice and then how to apply that to someone else. So I think we need to look at educational standards. In my perfect world, quote unquote, 
I think this is true, but probably isn't because there isn't a perfect world anyway, is I would think that to be a yoga teacher would take four years of college, which is what it takes in the United States to get an undergraduate degree. And then to train teachers, you'd have the equivalent of a master's. And then to do therapeutics or very highly specialized work like trauma work, you'd have a PhD. That's what I would like to see yoga teaching get to. And that level of respect and that level of commitment. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it's undoubtedly needs something when you, you know, you need much less qualification to, to assist a body and, 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 you know, and also insert words and ideas into that person who's quite open at that time than, than cutting someone's hair. So it, it is a bizarre state of affairs currently, isn't it? But I mean, you were not only responsible for the Yoga Alliance, but also Yoga Journal has done a lot into spreading a certain kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. or message around, right? So, I mean- You know why we did that? Because we had <laughs> in, San, in California, California and San Francisco Bay Area, we had a, a yoga group of people and we had a, a little newsletter where you could advertise your actual printed in the old days, um, you could advertise your classes and things like that. It was called The Word. And one of our members was actually my husband said, why don't we do, why don't we do a magazine? And the reason we decided to do a magazine, because this there was this new mag, specialty magazine called Runner's World. It was very popular. In those days, specialty magazines were few and far between, very mm. few and far between. And so we none of us had ever done a magazine. And we got together. There were five of us at our house, still have the rug we sat on and said, let's have a magazine. We had $500 on this newfangled thing called a MasterCard. And we started it because no one told us we couldn't. Hmm. And I, you know, I wanted, I had wanted to major in journalism in college. I didn't, but um, so I, you know, I would write some of the things and people, we just did it. Hmm. And, you know, it was just the right time at the right place kind of thing. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was a lot of luck and a lot of ignorance, actually. We had no business plan. What's a business plan? We just did, you know, we just did it mostly out of love. So I, I, I was very lucky. I came to the Bay area just as yoga started to explode. And I was able to be part of a lot of things that I, I really enjoyed to help the spread of yoga. But I, I hope that we, we don't lose the heart of yoga in the middle of popularity. And as you said, numbers of people on your Instagram that we, we don't forget that it is a deeply personal transformative practice that allows us to discover the true self and to live and act from a state of presence. I like to say Shavasana is a gift you give yourself in the world at the same time. So our practice is not just about us. And I'm not sure that we all know that yet. It's about how the gift of our lives, how we live. That's what our practice is about in the end. think now it's become a profession and that's one difficulty whereas when you started it wasn't really although albeit you did 
you know become a professional quite quickly even when i started it wasn't really like something that you would definitely make money out of right i was a cook i worked as a cook and assumed that i could make money doing that and teach yoga on the side so there's a confusion now and, and you know and yoga journal has done some great things but it also spread the idea you know in part that you know you can do yoga as a profession and uh, and make a living at it so people you know they, they go to that before they go to the personal practice aspect of things mm-hmm. what was your what did you think the the main contribution of yoga journal has been demystify yeah 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 normalize yeah any particular articles or or issues you can that you're really particularly proud of um well all bodies are yoga bodies Mm. i like that teaching and not just the perfect body um and it it generally offers personal stories about people and those are always always very important ways of learning uh i i think it's it's legitimized uh yoga in a way it's made it it's helped to make it a part of our culture it's everywhere now even if it's just the surface everyone thinks they know what yoga is you know doctors will tell people to take yoga and they've never done yoga themselves i mean mm, mm. we wouldn't even tell our doctors we were doing yoga <laughs> well listen it's been a really fun talking to you today I've enjoyed thank you it. Uh, yeah uh, i didn't realize you've done class with patabi joyce as well so you did some ashtanga in your in your time as well did you yes i i uh i, I my first ashtanga class was with patabi joyce my first oh. Iyengar class was with Iyengar. My first introduction to Rolfing was with a prize. Ida Rolf. Many people with Ida Rolf. Yeah. 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 I uh, mean, I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, One it sounds like it. This is Ram Das. You know, uh, I just had a lot of contact with that level of beginning of yoga in the, in the U.S. and was very lucky. Before you go, let me just ask you two quick fire questions at the end of the podcast. We often do this. Can you give me one um one inspiration, one thing that inspires you in life? It can be a place, person, or idea, even. And I say one guilty pleasure. You don't have to be guilty about it, but just something that you know you like. Well, I'm to not guilty about it. And I want to tell you no, that one you, first. That one okay. first. Yeah. I love chocolate. And it's not this. I will, if forced, eat the healthy dark chocolate, but no, I just really like very good milk chocolate. Oh well. God, oh, that's I love unusual. it. Yeah, yeah. I know it. Um, <laughs> but life is also about pleasure, you know. Absolutely. And I think I would just end with this saying that I wrote once that I I try to remember every day. We think life is strong and love is fragile, but really it's the other way around. Life hangs by a thread and love holds the universe together. So when I hear that, when I think that, when I feel that, I remember that it's about respect and love and that life is ephemeral and fast. And that helps me 
feel a inner space of my heart being open. And I like that because I always like what I say and do when I do it from an open heart. I always like mm. when I get back, I like what I create. Whether it's teaching yoga or talking to you or being with my children, whatever. Okay. Well, that seems a good, sufficient place to stop. And uh, well, I'll let you get through the chocolate one because you just say, I usually say people can't say chocolate, but then if you say milk chocolate, then I suppose we'll, we'll allow you through. Um, so <laughs> thank, thank you for, uh, for just a, a lovely chat. And I, I think I read your books in the early years before I did Ashtanga Yoga and got enmeshed in that. And I, I you know, enjoyed them and uh, the yoga journal when we didn't have any other yoga magazines, right? It was hugely inspirational in my, for, for my, as you say, demystifying and just kind of like broadening perspectives. So um, yeah, thank right. you for your contribution to the yoga world. I really yeah. appreciate it. And let's see if we can maybe get your daughter, Lizzie, next. That would be lovely. And I, and I also would like to thank you for your time and energy and, and the work that you do in the world to, to help other people understand and practice yoga through your podcasts and other ways that you contribute to the well-being of the world. Thank you for that. Ah, I try my best. Not as good as you, but, you know, maybe given another 40 years, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try and I'll do a little bit more. Maybe live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. All right. Thank you very much for your timing. Thank you. Thank you.